Today, we're, uh, hello, uh, we're going to begin a new study uh, that's going to unfold gradually over a number of months, so it's just in little pockets, but every month, checkpoints for the next while. So for generations, Psalm 23 has brought peace, uh, brought encouragement to those wrapped up in the realities of life. And we're going to choose to let the Good Shepherd speak into our lives and receive the promise of His presence with us. The Lord is my shepherd. So I uh, thought it would be a great way to start for us to read this together in perhaps its most iconic English translation, the King James Version. Verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 2, He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. Three, he restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Four, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff they comfort me. Five, thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Six, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Episode one, gift versus giver. Somewhere in high school, I began to be interested in stories surrounding World War II. I read about The Great Escape and Sobibor and The Dam Busters and Douglas Bader, the pilot with two artificial legs and the, the wooden horse of Camp Luftstalag III. And you cannot learn much about this time without noticing the enormous sacrifices that entire countries made for the war effort. And thinking now, I'm not sure that we could do that today. We're, we're not the same kind of people anymore. We are very self-absorbed. We're so concerned about ourselves alone in every circumstance. But, but there's more than just our developed selfishness to overcome because economists say that Canada and the United States and most Western nations transition from a manufacturing-based economy to a consumer-based economy in the 1950s. The world changed once again at that point. That means our society now depends on discontent. It's essential for people to consistently buy more and more of what they desire, not merely what they need. We need you to do it. They might not even desire it without help there too because we've made advertising and marketing an annual $674 billion a year global business. We need you to need something, anything. We, we need you to want it, to need it, to buy it, 
and then to move on to the next thing. We depend on it. And during World War II, the government severely restricted public consumption of certain goods needed for the war effort. We're all in this together. Let's do our part by rationing, uh, pulling together, and not using these vital products and resources. Now, by contrast, following the 9-11 terrorist attacks, if you recall, regularly the news would tell you Americans were told that making any sacrifices to our indulgent lifestyles was tantamount to letting the terrorists win. Don't let them change our way of life. This is how we live. Our economy is our identity, and we drive the economy through consumption. It's an economy named desire. In contemporary Western culture, uh, we, we cultivate wants. We had no idea we needed that. We, we, we create desires. And lamenting unmet passions is now more virtuous than contentment. Our economy, our way of life, our practically lived out Western religion depends on our discontentment. So we get this mixed message that the path to happiness is by getting what you want, and yet happiness is discovered to be unattainable because we can never ultimately get what we want. Why? Because we have been trained to want what we don't have. To, to want what is coming soon, new and improved. Happiness is the myth that we chase after through regular bouts of discontent. But God will change our hearts, right? God will change our hearts. And you know what? Honestly, I, confession, I used to dread that. God doing that, changing my heart. Because I only wanted to be content by getting the things that I wanted. I didn't want to want what God wanted. That's the old, uh, don't, don't, don't send me to some backwards jungle, God. Come on, God. I don't want you to make me any more dorky and want only dorky stuff. I want to want cool stuff. I, I, I want a sweet car. I want cool clothes. I want nice shoes. A boat. Yeah, a boat. Ooh, and a lake house in a forest. That's what I want. God, that's what I want. And I want you to want those things with me, for me, right? I want you to provide that for me. And I used to dread suddenly waking up one day, dread it, that one day I would wake up and I would want to somehow feed starving orphans surrounded by mud huts. Because that's what God wants for me, right? That's what God wants for everyone. He wants us all to go and feed orphans in front of mud huts. So somewhere buried in there was my fundamental lack of trust. I didn't know God very well. I, I, I didn't trust my loving Heavenly Father. I just didn't believe that He wanted the best for the me that he made me to be. I believe that he wanted to force what he wanted, or my perception of what he wanted, for everyone on me. Like he was going to make me more of a dorky caricature of the Christian, because we're all the same, right? All Christians are exactly the same. Like Steve Taylor used to sing, I want to be a clone. How could I be content if I was not me? And you know what I discovered? God made me. 
He is not surprised by me or by you. Of course, I need to continue to grow, and I need to continue to develop, and I need to continue to mature, but I don't need to be and look just like everyone else. I need to be me growing into one with Christ, the same thing that you need, not to be me, but to be you. There has been so much more peace in my life since I, as I've learned to uh, stop striving, uh, to start striving for what it is that I deeply want. And, and, and not just what I surface want, my immediate wants, the ones that are just on the surface. My surface wants change all the time. I, I, I constantly want something different. Year after year, I, I, I value different things. It, it's hard to continue to be happy after the anticipation has turned into acquisition. Once I've got it, I don't want it in nearly the same way. But God made me with my personality and my contentment. And my contentment probably won't look like yours because He's made you with your personality and with the things that will content you. But the pathway to contentment is the same. Earnest pursuit of Jesus. And my, my contentment loses its fogginess when I am well and consistently connected to Jesus. When I'm not, maybe you can identify with this, when I'm not, I just believe all kinds of lies about what will bring me contentment, and I constantly prove myself wrong. I believe a lie, I go after it, and I find that I'm not content. Let, let, me, let me get more preachery and state it more strongly that this has been my experience. Contentment versus discontentment is a holy war. Peace versus unrest is a battlefield in the realm of spiritual warfare. Peace and order and rest, the experience of trust, describes and is the experience of the realized, recognized kingdom of God. And I'm in it, living in the kingdom bringing the kingdom into visible existence. Unrest, disorder, chaos, the experience of fear, uncertainty, worry. That's the kingdom of this world. That is the domain. That is the empire of Antichrist. It's not like Christ. By your living, through your relationships, you are empowering the kingdom of Christ or the empire of Antichrist. Now, I, I know that sounds kind of overblown and maybe a little bit melodramatic. And yes, I am blowing it up. I told you, I'm getting preacherish. I'm blowing it up for emphasis, all right? But it's still the truth. Our experience of the shepherd fundamentally changes our lives, or at least it can. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Man, that's a pretty picture. But it's also a description of life that for most of us seems impossible or at the very best, improbable. How can a world like that exist at the same time and in the same physical space as all of the lawlessness and all of the lack of security that we constantly hear about? The battle is so frequently fought in our minds, 
But the outcomes are seen in our relationships, our relationship with God, with ourselves, with others, and even with our relationship to creation. These four major relationships are um, that we need to constantly be growing in each of them. Those relationships are how we experience this world. All of this makes Psalm 23 seem even more foreign, uh, even more incomprehensible to us modern readers. It's just Bible talk, right? David begins this metaphor as the Lord is my shepherd by speaking of the contentment God's presence brings. Right at the beginning, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And it's sometimes translated as the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Dallas Willard, a well-known scholar, writer, he used to raise sheep. Uh, and he noted that the verses that follow, so 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, all reinforce that message of contentment. Sheep typically do not lie down in green pastures. They eat the green pastures. That's what they do, right? Likewise, sheep are expected to drink from quiet waters. That's why I brought you here not to just walk beside them. But the imagery of Psalm 23 is of sheep so satisfied, bellies full, thirst quenched, that they are quite content to just bypass their favorite food and drink. They don't need it. David is saying that real contentment is only possible in the presence of the shepherd and all that the shepherd brings with him. It's not in the material things that the shepherd provides, however good they may be. It's not saying that they're not good. And this is something that I need to remember regularly. Maybe you need to remember this too. Too often I look for my desires to be met in God's good gifts rather than in God himself. Good gifts that continue to arrive at regular and brief intervals, thank you very much. That's how I would like it. And I don't want to dismiss those wonderful things that I have received from his hand, just as David is not uh, minimizing the value of green pastures and quiet waters. But still, there is an infinite qualitative difference between the gifts and the giver, between the green grass and the good shepherd. When I seek contentment in God's blessings, my wants will only ever subside temporarily. They fade is what it really seems like, and then they come back soon, stronger than ever. But when I learn to seek my satisfaction in God Himself, the pleasures offered by the things of this world grow strangely dim in comparison. It's an eyes-up situation again, right? Where will I intentionally focus my eyes? Where will I allow my eyes to linger? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Our family of churches is known as now as the Alliance, but formerly we were known as the Christian and Missionary Alliance, and 
formally even more than that, there was the Christian Alliance and the Evangelical Missionary Alliance. And these were two separate organizations that gathered from people from a number of different denominations. It was never supposed to be a denomination. On one hand, there was the Christian Alliance, and they just were people who said, we're devoted to experiencing the deeper life of the Spirit. And then the Evangelical Missionary Alliance were people who were committed to fulfilling the great commission of Jesus. That's what we should do. And they finally came together, became a denomination, because they became convinced that the deeper life in the Spirit, the earnest pursuit of Jesus, would point anyone towards the compassionate care for those around them, both locally and internationally. That's how he came into existence. The founder of both of those two separate groups was Albert Benjamin Simpson, A.B. Simpson. He was a pastor, and he wrote a hymn pretty much for every sermon he preached. So needless to say, they are not all great. Uh, But perhaps his best and most famous hymn is the summary of perhaps his best and most influential sermon, both of them titled himself. Here are the words. Once it was the blessing, now it is the Lord. Once it was the feeling, now it is His Word. Once His gift I wanted, now the giver own. Once I sought for healing, now Himself alone. All in all forever, only Jesus will I sing. Everything is in Christ, and Christ is everything. Once was painful trying, now tis perfect trust. Once a half salvation, now the uttermost. Once was ceaseless holding, now he holds me fast. Once twas constant drifting. Now my anchor's cast. Once t'was busy planning. Now tis trustful prayer. Once t'was anxious caring. Now he has the care. Once t'was what I wanted. Now what Jesus says. Once t'was constant asking, now tis ceaseless praise. Once it was my working, his it hence shall be. Once I tried to use him, now he uses me. Once the power I wanted, now the mighty one. Once for self I labored, now for him alone. Once I hoped in Jesus, now I know he's mine. Once my lamps were dying, now they brightly shine. Once for death I waited, now his coming hail, and my hopes are anchored safe within the veil. The goalposts shifted over time. 
there comes a maturity in faith where the desires change. There is an ongoing sanctification wherein we are being and continually are being transformed by the renewing of our minds. We grow in step with, we stay connected, we are one with the vine, we are in sync, we are ever growing into one. Our wants and our needs become aligned with the mind of Christ. The discontent grows more easy to identify, and once identified, it is easier to reject. That connection is sometimes symbolized as receiving the living water. John chapter 4, starting at verse 7. When a woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? 8. His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. That's an important parenthetical note because he's a rabbi and his needs should have been taken care of by his disciples. He shouldn't have had to get water. They should have just brought it to him. But hey, they're already gone to get takeout. So that's why they're not there. That's why he's talking to this woman. So 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, very important that we say the Samaritan woman, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Subnote, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans and men don't talk to women by themselves. It's just not what's done. But Jesus frequently does that which is just not done. 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's asking you for a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. 11. Sir, the woman said, you've got nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? 12. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well, drank from it himself, and also did his sons and his livestock? 13. And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. 14. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. In, in, indeed, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and I have to keep coming back here to draw water. When you experience true peace, you discover that it is also freedom, not obligation. Freedom to live, freedom to move, freedom to be at peace. The living water that Jesus is talking about is the gift of communion with the Holy Spirit. It is relationship. It is attachment. It is co-living. We live together. The Spirit of God transforms our mind and our wants and our needs and not in the scary way that I anticipated. 
Don't make me do things that I don't want to do. Allow me to become everything that I was designed and created for. That up until this point, I have been held back. Back by myself, held back by my circumstances, held back by those other things around me. Release me to be free. To delight in who I am, who you have made me to be with you. And then empower me as we go. Nudge me as you would that I might be able to connect well with you. Be my shepherd. Take me to the places I need to go. Provide me with what I need to survive. I shall not be in want. The Lord is my shepherd. So we come to this time. We call it communion, the Lord's Supper. And uh, we call them checkpoint services. We stop on the road trip for a moment and we reconnoiter. We uh, do some reconnaissance, check to make sure where we're supposed to be. We remember what God has done in the ancient past, the, the recent past, my past, your past. Don't forget what God has already done. Don't forget your stories of God's faithfulness because that's what happens. They all fade. Every time you've had a significant connection with God, it fades. Was it what I remembered? So valuable if you have a significant spiritual connection to journal it, to write it down because your own recall of it will become weak and you will let it fade like the, uh, um, the paper that you get for, as a receipt, that heat paper, and over time, the words just disappear. When we were separated and I lived in Saskatchewan and Cheryl lived in Ottawa, we would send faxes back to each other. For those of you who don't know what a fax is, um, <laughs> there's only so much I can help you with. Uh, it's, it's another one of our history lessons. But the, the, the paper would print out on this heat-sensitive paper, and the, the, the words would, would appear as they were sort of heated there. But over time, they fade. And, and, and Cheryl went back to, to read through some of these. And honestly, they were just incredibly well-written, beautiful, beautiful letters. <laughs> the pages are all blank. They're gone. That's the same thing what happens with, with, with our spiritual memory so frequently. God changed my life. I, I couldn't believe it that day. My, my, my heart was broken. I saw things in a way that I'd never did. I was convicted. I was convinced. And then I, I forgot. And it probably wasn't that big of a deal. And maybe it wasn't that significant at all. And well, yeah, I was there that day. It fades. So we choose to remember that's what Jesus asked us to do this time anyways. Do this in remembrance of me is what he says, but it's, remember me. Remember what I've done. Not, not just because it was written in the Bible. That's not the only time that God has moved. But we have those records, ancient past. We have historical past. We can hear the stories of other people. What has God done in their lives? God is active. He is at work in this world, and he continues to be in ways and in places that we didn't plan and we didn't see and we didn't even think about. God is at work, and we choose to remember how He has already worked in our lives. He has been faithful. But there's something about the way Satan works, I think, that, that, that plucks the color out of our memories. 
unless they're bad. The bad ones seem to stay fully colored, and in fact, they get enhanced. But good spiritual things, it feels like he, he pulls them away from us. We remember, and we reevaluate based on what I can remember about God and what he has done, what he's opened up for me. Where am I right now? We've pulled over. We're not going to keep driving if it's the wrong direction. We're going to stop. We're going to check and get our bearings, look at the map, see if we're heading in the direction we would like to be. And for you as an individual, are you right now moving in the direction that you believe to be God's best for you? It's really hard to do that consistently. That's why we choose to do this regularly so we don't have too much time to let ourselves get distracted by work, by selfishness, by busyness, by anger, by hurt feelings. When, when, when I was a child and someone told me, did they hurt your feelings? You go, yes, they hurt my feelings, and it was totally okay. And there was usually some sort of stuffy that would arrive, because stuffies help me to process my hurt feelings and, and, and maybe a little treat. And as I got older, I don't ever want to tell you, I will never admit to you that you hurt my feelings. Did it stop hurting my feelings? No, it did not. But I am proud. I don't want to give you the power of knowing that you hurt me. I don't want to give them that, and I don't want to be embarrassed by the fact that my feelings are hurt. Suck it up, buttercup. Move along. None of that stops our feelings from being hurt. And there are all kinds of reasons why you are right in assessing that your feelings have been hurt. People have done mean things to you. They have said unkind words, sometimes to you, but sometimes about you to somebody else, and then you heard about it later. Your feelings are hurt. It distracts you from where you want to go because you would like to feel hurt for a while, and maybe you need a chance to say that. Maybe the stuffy helps you to process that pain. But there's all kinds of reasons for us to not be on the path that we believe is best for us, the path that God has laid out for us. It's not just that it's some unknown path that God has. We can identify it ourselves. I'm not going in the direction that will be best for me. I've become overly concerned with this. I've become overly influenced by that. I'm too distracted. I'm, I'm, I'm not thinking God thoughts well. And that's why we stop to reevaluate because I don't want you to get too far that it's too hard to come back. So we remember what God's done. We reevaluate where we are right now. And then the gift, the blessing, the presence of God in your life, we refocus before we leave. Don't keep going down a path that you have already identified as taking you away from your good shepherd, the one who in his presence you find calm waters and good pasture the one who provides for your needs. If you can identify now that you are walking away for whatever reason before you leave today, before we sign off today,
Refocus. Express your freedom in not being bound to a pathway that leads to destruction. You don't have to keep going down that way. Yeah, you said things. And yeah, it would be hard for you to turn around and walk away from it. But refocus. Before it's too late. It won't get easier. It will only get harder. Stop. Remember, reevaluate, refocus. And as you process through those things with where you are right now, we prepare ourselves. Paul wrote a letter to a church in the city of Corinth. And he only wrote this letter after he'd spent a whole bunch of time with Peter and some of the other apostles. He learned from them. And, and, and so he's, he's actually, the reason he wrote the letter to Corinth is because everything I taught you, how come you're walking away from it all? How do you guys butcher this so badly? So he comes into this conversation about the Lord's Supper because they were butchering it badly. They had separated the church out into classes. There was the in-group, wealthy, powerful, and, and, and they would eat this love feast in a separate room. And in their room, it's that, that old picture of uh, the, the, the Viking feast, you know? Take one bite and then throw it on the ground. Have another drink, slosh it all over yourself. They had excess and abundance. And the rest of the church, the beloved brothers and sisters, were in another room without enough food, no, no celebration, and this distinction was so clear. And Paul's going, how do you not get this? How did you come together to celebrate, to remember, to reevaluate, and to refocus? How did you do this focus on Jesus? Remember him while you were in the act of separating badly. So whatever it is that's separating you, that's not what's supposed to happen. So b before you can take the Lord's Supper and Communion, you, you have to stop the separation stuff. And that's separation with each other, but it's separation to God as well. And so that's why we take the time to say, am I where I'm supposed to be? And if not, this is a time for repentance. It's a time to deal with forgiveness. It's a time to go and talk to someone else and say, I've wronged you. Let's make things right. One of my most powerful memories I have is when that happened to me as well. And I've told you that story a number of times. Verse 23 here. Paul is saying, he's giving his references. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. Here's the story. Let me tell you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. 24. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body. And they're going, what? This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So whenever we do it, we remember him. And the idea of remembering is not that you remember and then keep doing what you're doing. You remember him and you go, oh man, right. I got to refocus. I reevaluate and I refocus. It's all happening in this space. 25, in the same way, after supper, laughing, enjoying, having this great supper that they have incredible memories of for their whole life, 
He took the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And they're like, whoa, there can't be a new covenant. We already have a covenant. That covenant was made with the blood of, of, of lambs. This is our story in Egypt. It's our whole identity. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this part. Whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. So whenever you do this getting together and eating together, the celebration of Christ, do it in remembrance of me. Remember. And as you remember, you're for forced to reevaluate. And then you find blessing if you can refocus. 26. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, which is kind of our mission. Not to say, Jesus died, he rose again, and continue to bicker and argue, but to come together. That's why we do it regularly, so that we remember, so that we reevaluate, so that we refocus, that we would live in light of what Jesus has done. We remember him. So when we take communion, it's not just stuff that we hope is magic. It's a process that we go to to remember what Jesus has done. We reevaluate where we are individually and we refocus before we go. That's what happens as we go through communion. There is a connection time for you with God that is not somehow governed by me. You have direct access to God Himself. We reflect that story by the taking of communion, which is what we're going to do now. But I would encourage you, before you go and take stuff, take stock. Where are you with God right now? Because the blessing that is available to you is pure heart, freedom of conscience. Don't keep walking down a path that's away from God when He is calling to you, beckoning you back to Himself. Be restored. Be reunited. Remember well. And because of your remembrance, live as a changed person. Kind Father, I thank you for the gift of Jesus that we have received. Thank you that you decided that we were important enough to come yourself to earth, to live in the world that we have to live to be betrayed by one of your closest friends, to face a trial, a sham trial. All they wanted was to kill you and make you go away, to quiet you down. And you allowed them to do it, knowing that as you died as a perfect person, you would be able to take all of our sin upon you. And the death that you die on the cross is a sacrifice that pays for our sin. We don't have to live under the weight of all of the stuff that holds us back and holds us down, you have freed us from it so that when God himself looks at us, he doesn't see our actions. He sees the righteousness of Christ. This is what happens in this incredibly important story that we declare again and again, and you didn't stay dead. You came back to life. You regenerated the promise of regeneration for us, but also of eternal life with you in the presence of our good shepherd where we will continue to experience no need to want. 
Give us the gift of contentment this week as we seek to live in light of what you have done and of who you are and who you are with us. Not from some distant heaven, but the Holy Spirit living deep within us. Prepare our hearts now to receive this gift that you have offered to us and meet my friends here today with grace. As they walk through this process themselves, meet them with grace and mercy to face whatever it is that they are going to be facing in these next days. That we might live well with our eyes up on you. Continue to transform our hearts and our minds, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Come down this aisle, up that aisle. Communion's at the back waiting for you.